Back in 1989, anybody remember back then? <laughs> Milton Bradley came out with a board game that was called Mall Madness. And in the instructions, here's what it says, I'm quoting. Will you be the first to lose all your money? You are let loose in a shopping mall with $200. Go to it and spend it all. Empty your pockets first and you win the game. When you spend every cent, your marker moves triumphantly into the winner's circle labeled broke, and you win. <laughs> oh, gosh. The original game, which was one of the first with the technology to actually talk to players, is now a collector's item. I looked online this week. Used games are selling for $100 or more on eBay. Now, the game was originally marketed for girls ages 9 through 12, but Milton Bradley admits that they had a difficult time reaching their target audience. Why? Because girls ages 9 through 12 would rather go to an actual mall and spend $200 in reality <laughs> than play some silly game. Speaking of the mall, did you know that there are only 111 days until Christmas? <laughs> Retailers will actually begin setting up Christmas displays this coming week. For the Christmas season in retail now begins officially the day after Labor Day. Did you know that? I already received my first Christmas catalog this last week. Advertisers are already jockeying for position to get us to buy their products. Television commercials, junk mail, internet spam, billboards, credit card offers, newspaper and magazine ads. Merchants will use every possible means to convince us that we just can't live without such and such. That purchasing this or that will bring true joy and satisfaction. We won't hear one time the word covet by these businesses. But you can bet that they are banking upon our covetousness to kick our shopping into high gear. Well, this morning our 11th lesson in the series, Roman numeral 10, How God's People Live, brings us to the 10th of the... Ten Commandments, here Exodus 20 and verse 17. Follow along in your Bible as I read this final commandment. Exodus 20, verse 17, the very finger of God penned these words, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's begin today's lesson by taking a closer look at this boundary together. You shall not covet. I found that this video clip does a pretty good job, I think, of introducing this Tenth Commandment. So let's just watch it together. I think you'll learn some things from this. In the Ten Commandments, Commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9 are the ones that prohibit acts of evil, murder, adultery, stealing, and perjury. And then there is one commandment that prohibits the thing that leads to murder, adultery, stealing, and perjury. Which one is it? It's the last of the ten. Do not covet anything 
that belongs to others. Not their spouse, their house, their servants, their animals, or any of their property. In order to understand this commandment and its unique significance, the first thing to understand is that this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that legislates thought. All the other commandments legislate behavior. In fact, of the 613 laws in the five books of Moses, virtually none prohibit thought. Why then does the Ten Commandments include a law that prohibits a thought? Because it is coveting that so often leads to evil. Or, to put it another way, coveting is what leads to violating the preceding four commandments, the ones against murder, adultery, stealing, and perjury. Think about it. Why do people do those things? In most instances, it's because they covet something that belongs to another person. Obviously, that is the reason people steal. Thieves covet their victim's property. But it is also the reason for many murders, and coveting is obviously the reason for adultery wanting the spouse of another person. As for perjury, or bearing false witness in the language of the Ten Commandments, that is done in order to cover up all these other crimes that are caused by coveting. But in order to understand why coveting is the one thought that is prohibited in the Ten Commandments, and one of the only thoughts prohibited in the entire Hebrew Bible, we need to understand what coveting means, and equally important, what it doesn't mean. To covet is much more than to want. The Hebrew verb, lachmod, means to want to the point of seeking to take away and own something that belongs to another person. Note that there are two operative elements here, seeking to own and belongs to another person. Seeking to own does not mean just envying, or in the case of your neighbor's spouse, just lusting after. Neither envy nor lust is prohibited in the Ten Commandments. Uncontrolled envy and lust can surely lead to bad things, and they can both be psychologically and emotionally destructive. But neither one is prohibited in the Ten Commandments. Why? Because neither is the same as coveting. It is coveting that almost inevitably leads to stealing, to adultery, and sometimes even to murder. Let me explain this in another way. The Tenth Commandment does not prohibit you from saying, Wow, what a great house or car or spouse my neighbor has. I wish I had such a house or car or spouse. That may end up being destructive, but it may also end up being constructive. How? It may spur you to work harder and improve your life so that you can obtain a house or car or spouse like your neighbor's. It is when you want and seek to gain possession of the specific house, car, or spouse that belongs to another that evil ensues, and that is what the Tenth Commandment prohibits. Therefore, one of these Ten Commandments, these Ten Basic Rules of Life, must be that we simply cannot allow ourselves to covet what belongs to our neighbor. Whatever belongs to another person must be regarded as sacrosanct. We cannot seek to own anything that belongs to another, because only evil can come of it. Again, this final 
commandment, this tenth boundary begins, you shall not covet. That's not a word we use very often, is it? And as we just heard in the video, the word covet can be defined this way, to want to the point of seeking to take away and own something that belongs to another person. The dictionary gives this definition, to be obsessed in heart and mind on acquiring something. Now, the desire to acquire is not in and of itself bad. I mean, God created us with a desire to acquire in order to meet our basic needs. (laughs) Example, squirrels have a desire to acquire nuts, (laughs) to store them in order to survive the winter. And many birds have a desire to fly south, we call it instinct, to acquire a warmer, drier climate and the promise of food for the winter months. And so therefore people, you and I, have a desire to acquire food, clothing, and shelter to meet our basic needs. However, there is a point at which this desire to acquire becomes uncontrollable where need turns to want, where desire turns to greed, where longing turns to lust. And that's the point where we desire more than what is reasonable or affordable, where we want more than what we have and envy those who actually have it. And it's this attitude that God warns us about here in Exodus 20 and verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now if I were to sum up this command, you shall not covet, I would say that covetousness then is the uncontrolled desire to acquire. And to state this tenth timeless principle in a positive way, I would simply choose two words. Learning contentment. This final boundary, this tenth commandment, is all about learning contentment. Now let me make a couple of observations about covetousness. Let's talk first of all about the essence of Covetousness. What is it that distinguishes then a controlled desire to acquire from an uncontrolled desire to acquire? Well, it seems to me that the essence of covetousness is at least threefold. First of all, it is to desire excessively. To desire excessively. Ephesians 5 and verse 5 tells us being greedy is just another way of worshiping idols. Covetousness is, in fact, idolatry. And isn't it interesting that this 10th commandment goes full circle and comes back to touch the very first two commandments. You remember them? You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourself an idol. Secondly, it's to desire illegitimately. To desire illegitimately. Proverbs 21 and verse 6 warns us, cheating to get rich is a foolish dream and no less than suicide. And that's exactly what covetousness often leads to. We lie, we cheat, we steal to acquire something that is not ours illegitimately. And then third, I think it is also to desire selfishly. James 4 and verse 3 talks about 
our selfish motives. James writes, your whole aim is wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. <laughs> See, covetousness disregards other people. <laughs> doesn't care what somebody else thinks or what they feel. doesn't even care that it's their thing that you want. <laughs> it just kind of only cares about me, my, mine. It's all very selfish. So, how do we know when our desire to acquire has gotten out of control? The essence of covetousness is to desire excessively, to desire illegitimately, and or to desire selfishly. Which leads to the second observation I'd like to make about covetousness, and that's let's talk about the effects of covetousness on our lives. If we allow our desire to acquire to go uncontrolled and unchecked, there will be a number of harmful consequences that come our way. The effect of always wanting excessively, illegitimately, and selfishly will lead, I think, to at least these six results according to the Bible. First of all, it leads to fatigue. It leads to fatigue. Proverbs 23 and verse 4 cautions us, do not wear yourself out to be rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. But talk about a verse for our culture today right there, huh? You know, we developed this word workaholic, right? <laughs> we almost admire a workaholic. Why? Somebody who works too much. We're overworked and we are overtired. All because of covetousness. Secondly, it leads to debt. It leads to debt. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 11 is pretty candid with us. It says, the more money you have, the more money you spend. <laughs> Isn't that true? We always say, oh, if I had just a little bit more money, you know, then I'd be okay. No, no, you just have more debt. <laughs> That's all there is to it. I mean, we're in this world of instant gratification, getting what we want, when we want it, even when we don't have the money to get it. We call it credit. <laughs> Deficit spending. Third, it leads to worry. It leads to worry. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 12 reminds us a working man can get a good night's sleep but the rich man has so much that he stays awake worrying. <laughs> a study recently released shows that insomnia increases as income increases. Isn't that interesting? The more we have, you see, the more we worry about protecting it and saving it and investing it and insuring it and avoiding taxes on it. <laughs> you ever say to yourself, I remember when life was so much simpler. Yeah. So do I. Number four, it leads to conflict. Look at James 4 and verse 1. Why do you fight and argue with each other? Isn't it because you are full of selfish desires? Covetousness? I mean, when you have what I want, we're going to have conflict, Right? Fifth, it leads to dissatisfaction. This is an interesting one, by the way. Dissatisfaction. Don't miss Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 10. You will never be satisfied if you long to be rich. You will never get all you want. In fact, let me remind you that covetousness is the one sin that never, ever satisfies. Isn't that interesting? Every other sin in our carnal 
fleshly nature has at least a more a moment of satisfaction to it. Isn't that true? But not covetousness. Why? Because covetousness always wants more. <laughs> and it's never satisfied. In the words of Rockefeller when he was asked, how much money will it take to make you happy? And he said, one more dollar. Just, just one more dollar. And we think that ourselves. We think, oh, just one more thing, one more this, one more that, then I'll be happy, you know. But we're never, ever satisfied. Number six, it leads to reversion. Now that may be a word you don't hear very often. See, conversion is when we come to Christ. Reversion is when we fall away from Christ. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10 warns us, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I could tell you story after story of people I've known over 40-some years of ministry who have suddenly come into money, an inheritance, a job promotion, whatever, and here were these godly men and women who totally turned their back on God. I don't understand it. But that's what covetousness can do. So, what are the effects of covetousness? The uncontrolled desire to acquire can lead to fatigue, debt, worry, conflict, dissatisfaction, and reversion. And by the way, that's not an exhaustive list, but it is certainly a list we want to avoid, right? Again, this 10th commandment is all about learning contentment, which leads us to draw some conclusions. Would you read Philippians 4, verses 11 and 12 out loud with me? Let's read this together. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in each and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Notice the Apostle Paul says there, I have learned the secret of being content. Isn't that interesting? You see, contentment is something that we must learn. <laughs> so how can we learn to be content? How can we live within this tenth boundary in our everyday lives? Well, let me suggest these four steps to at least get us started in the right direction. Step number one, resist comparing ourselves to others. Resist comparing ourselves to others. Notice what it says, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. We do not dare classify or compare ourselves. It is not wise. In other words, it's just plain folly to get caught in the trap of comparing ourselves to other people. The Bible says that's stupidity. And yet that's exactly what we do. <laughs> We compare appearance, we compare houses, we compare clothes, we compare cars, we compare jobs, we compare education, we compare brand names and labels. And why do we do all of this comparison? Because in our culture, you see, you keep score <laughs> by comparison. As if our net worth and our self-worth are one and the same. How foolish. <laughs> I heard a story about a lady who asked her husband on the way home from church, did you see that incredible hat that the lady wore who greeted us at the door? And her husband goes, No. <laughs> and she said, Did you notice the stunning dress the gal wore who played the piano? And he said, 
No. And she said, well, surely you notice the huge diamond ring the woman wore who sat in front of us. And he said, no. And she replied, well, a lot of good it does you to go to church. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> As we read in First Timothy 6 and verse 9, covetousness and envy... Bring trouble and nothing but trouble. Going down that path, some lose their footing in the faith completely and live to regret it bitterly ever after. Watch out. Beware. Don't get caught in the comparison trap. Always having to be equal to or better than others. We need to learn to admire without having the desire to acquire. Step number two. Rejoice in what we already have. We need to rejoice in what we already have. I like Paul's simple statement, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Simple. Solomon put it this way, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 19, if God gives a man wealth and property, he should be grateful and enjoy what he has. It is a gift from God. Again, Ecclesiastes 6 verse 9 tells us it's better to be satisfied with what you have than to be always wanting something else. So let me ask you, are you rejoicing in what you already have? Content with your present circumstances or are you always coveting what others have and wishing that you had it? I thought this video was rather poignant and it's, it's, it's based on technology probably none of us have. I don't, I know. Maybe you do. I, Google glasses, are you familiar with them? Yeah. Seeing through Google glasses. Watch this. It 
is dull, son of Adam, to drink without eating, said the queen presently. What would you like best to eat? Turkish delight, please, your majesty, said Edmund. I like the way the video ends there, don't you? I mean, with contentment. This man, after doing all that comparison, he finally comes home and realizes, you know what? What I've got's cool. <laughs> and he's rejoicing in his life. You see, happiness is not getting whatever you want. Happiness is enjoying what you already have. Our problem is that we bought into when and then thinking. You know, it's this old equation. When I get, you fill in the blank, then I'll be happy. I mean, what are you waiting on in order to be happy this morning? Well, don't wait on anything. That's the point. Happiness is your choice right now. Learn to be satisfied and fulfilled with what you do have. Learn to enjoy your lot in life at this very moment. Step number three. Release what we have to help others. Release what we have to help others. Read 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19 out loud with me. Let's read this together. Tell those who are rich not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which will soon be gone. Tell them to use their money to do good, to give happily to those in need, always being ready to share with others what God has given them. By doing this, they will be storing up real treasures for themselves in heaven. It is the only safe investment for eternity. Tell those who are rich. Paul writes. <laughs> we go. Whew. He's not talking about me. <laughs> oh, really? I read something this last week that puts all this in perspective. Let me put our present circumstances here in America in proper perspective. According to a recent demographic study by the United Nations, if we could at this very moment shrink the world's population to a village with exactly 100 people and all of the existing human ratios remain the same, that village would look like this. There would be 57 Asians, 21 Europeans, 14 North, 14 Central, 14 South Americans, and 8 Africans. In that village, 70 would be unbelievers and 30 would claim to be Christian. 50% of the entire village's wealth would be in the hands of six people, all of whom are citizens of the U.S. 70 of these people would be unable to read. 50 would suffer from malnutrition. 80 would be living in substandard housing, and only one out of a hundred would even have a college education. Is that amazing? But, folks, that's reality. And so, when Paul addresses those who are rich, I just want you to know he's talking directly to you and to me. Now, is it possible for us to be wealthy and not materialistic? Certainly. Materialism is a frame of mind. It's an attitude of the heart. And these verses that we just read in 1 Timothy chapter 6 suggest two don'ts and two do's to avoid a materialistic attitude. First, don't be proud of our wealth. 
And then don't trust in money or things for security. And then do use your money for good and do give our money to help others. The bottom line here, I think, is this. We must learn to let go of our money, not to hoard our possessions, to know when enough is enough, and then to give the rest away. That's a concept. To store up real treasure in heaven, Paul says, by helping others. As Jesus Himself said in Acts 20 and verse 35, there's more happiness in giving than in receiving. Step number four. We need to refocus on what is going to last. Refocus on what is going to last. Kind of takes us back to the video we watched right before communion this morning, huh? Looking up. Paul challenges us, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 8. We fix our attention not on the things that are seen, but on the things that are unseen. What can be seen lasts only for a time, but what cannot be seen lasts forever. Simply put, everything we can see and touch and taste and smell and hear is only temporary. These earthly material things will not last. They will decay, rust, wear out, fall apart, or die. And we must learn then to fix our attention on the things we cannot see. Those things that are eternal. Well, like what? Well, how about beginning with our relationship with God? (laughs) Our relationship with God. Luke 12, Jesus told the story of a man who had a bumper crop year. His assets went through the roof. So what did he do? He built bigger barns to store his goods and he said to himself, I've got it made, man. I can retire. I can enjoy life now. But he forgot God. Oops. And God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Double oops. And Jesus ended the story with this punchline. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Now in the midst of telling this story, Jesus makes a key statement in Luke 12 and verse 15. In fact, would you read it out loud with me? Let's read this together. Guard yourselves and keep free from all covetousness, the immoderate desire for wealth, the greedy longing to have more. For a man's life does not consist in and is not derived from possessing overflowing abundance or that which is over and above his basic needs. Man, we ought to advertise that on a billboard someplace. A man's life does not consist in and is not derived from possessing overflowing abundance or that which is over and above his basic needs. I heard the story of a wealthy widow who died leaving behind a fortune. And someone remarked at her funeral, how sad she had so much to live for. And somebody standing nearby quickly corrected and said, no, she had so much to live on, she had nothing to live for. And that's the way it is when we buy into the ruse that real life and real living are related to our net worth, how much money or how many possessions that we have. So let me ask you, what are you living for today? Not what are you living on. What are you living for today? Is your purpose in life determined by what is temporal 
or by what is eternal? By the culture around you or by Christ in you? So how can we learn contentment? How can we apply this 10th commandment to our everyday lives? Here are four steps, I think, to get us started in the right direction. Resist comparing ourselves with others. Rejoice in what we already have. Release what we have to help others. And refocus on what is going to last. Which brings us to a time of decision. Roman numeral number 10, how God's people live. This morning we've taken a look at this 10th and final commandment, learning contentment here in Exodus 20 and verse 17. You shall not covet. This is your memory verse then for this week. You can learn this one, right? Let's say it out loud together. You shall not covet. Yeah, you can get that. You can memorize that one. That's easy enough. A little harder to apply. So talk about this with your family and friends this week. Ask them, what do you think God meant when He said, no covetousness. What is this word? By the way, do you know that in the Catholic confessional, the least confessed sin, according to Catholic Digest, is covetousness. Isn't that interesting? It's because it dupes us. We don't know that we are covetous. Which is why God gave us this command to rule that thought. Isn't that interesting how we learned about that at the beginning? The only one that governs thought. So talk about it with your family and friends and apply it to your own life this coming week. It's decision time and here's the question. What is the main point of today's lesson and how will it impact me personally this week?